Hey guys, I'm lead pastor Noel Peepgrass, and I just wanted to welcome you to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a church family to be a part of, or feel called to join a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in our historic building at 218 West Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or visit our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. I'm often up there on business, bringing down Christmas decorations or camping gear, things like that. But sometimes I'm up there and something catches my eye or I, I wander a little deeper into the more dust-covered sections and find boxes and say, what's in there? And I love digging through those boxes and saying, what, what do we have up here? You know, I found boxes of stuff from my parents' house. I found pictures of myself as a child at my grandparents' house. And it just makes me, it brings back all these memories. I remember sitting with them around their table. I remember the warmth of their home and I miss them. And I just remember that time. I found old high school yearbooks up there, and that's fun to look through. I don't keep in touch with many people from high school, but um, it's fun to see what has changed. We have uh, Carissa's wedding dress up there preserved in a box, and I see it, and I remember our wedding day. I remember how amazing she looked in that dress, and, and I remember what did we dream about together then? What did we look forward and see what was our life going to be like? What did we envision for the future? Memories like these have a way of cutting through the clutter of everyday life and reawakening lost vision. They have a way of reorienting us and reminding us what matters and sometimes providing necessary course correction. And this is, I think, what's happening in the closing parable that Jesus shared. He says that a scribe fit for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The master of the house brings these things out in order to examine them, to remind himself what he has, what he owns, and consider what he should do with it. And Jesus' point is that God's word contains countless treasures worth examining, worth meditating on and considering. And specifically, here in Matthew 13, Jesus gives us seven parables, seven brief stories or scenes to show us what the kingdom of heaven is like. See, Jesus came onto the scene saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, he's saying, turn your lives around because there's a new king and a new kingdom that is breaking into this world. And this new kingdom is God's kingdom. And it's different than all the kingdoms that this world has ever known. His kingdom challenges us. It changes us. It's not just a new idea. It's a completely new way of seeing It reorients our values, and it flips our fallen human compass on its head. And that's one of the reasons I think Jesus told parables. I know that Noel talked last week about what parables are and why Jesus used them. 
They're stories. They're illustrations. They're the parts of the sermon that you actually remember. Because we like to think of ourselves as information machines, as if if Jesus just logically explained what we should do, and we, and we understood it, we would then do it. But that's not how we work, is it? You know what you should eat and how much you should eat and uh, what, what activity level you should be at or, or how you should use your money, right? You know these things, but do we do it? No, like just knowing isn't enough. It's, it's got to live inside us and become, we have to picture ourselves in it. And that's why we love stories. We want to live into something. And so let's take these seven treasures and let's be like the scribe. We'll lift them out and examine them again, or perhaps for the first time, and dwell on them and and see how they should reorient us and show us what matters. I know two weeks ago, uh, Glenn Power came and taught from Jesus' parable of the weeds, and he showed us how Jesus is addressing some of the big questions in life. Why is there evil in the world? What should we do about it? Will God bring judgment? And next week, uh, you're going to have Danny Bartlett, who's going to come and teach from the parable of the sower, about how Jesus said the word of the kingdom is being sown broadly, and how important it is to listen carefully to that word instead of just being empty hearers, so that the seed can sink deep into good soil, not be stolen by distraction or baked by persecution or choked out by the weeds of wealth, but instead bear good fruit. So that's what's come and what's coming, but this week I get five parables to cover, so buckle up. Um, these five parables, they break down into two pairs of illustrative parables, and then a closing parable of warning. And I want us to take a moment to examine each one and see what it has to show us about the kingdom of heaven and how we should be shaped by it. Sound good? All right, let's do it. So the first pair of parables are sometimes called the seed parables. And their goal is to show us how God's kingdom works. His kingdom doesn't work like our kingdom's. His kingdom flips our notion of power and effectiveness upside down. Let's read. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So here Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed and to a little bit of leaven. Just to clarify, leaven is yeast. And the way that women would make bread in Israel was by taking a little bit of the uncooked dough from the previous day's bread, that's the leaven, and they would mix it in with the fresh flour and dough and leave it to sit. If any of you have ever made sourdough, uh, it's the same process. You mix a little bit of your starter in with the flour and the water and let let it rest. Anyway, there are three points, I think, worth taking from Jesus' seed parables about the kingdom of heaven. First, the input, the beginning, is small and unassuming. A mustard seed 
is really small. I mean, really, any seed is small when you compare it to its end results. Rarely would you look at a seed and think, yeah, there's a tree right there, or there's a tomato plant. No, they're, they're tiny. And similarly, a little pinch of yesterday's dough mixing with a bunch of new dough shouldn't make an impact. It's too small. This year, for the first time, uh, over the summer, we had an above-ground pool in our backyard, and it, it was a big one from Costco, 6,000 gallons. And it was fun, but then we went on vacation for a few days in July, and stupidly, I tried to protect the water by covering it with a black plastic cover in July. And we came back from our trip, and I took the cover off, and the water was like a jacuzzi in there. And then, so I felt that, and I kid you not, one of my first thoughts was, I need to add some ice. <laughs> and so I go to the, our freezer, pull out the tray, which is more like a bin. It's, it's not small. I could fill up a small ice chest with it. But I come, and I throw it into the pool, and I just look at these tiny ice cubes floating in 6,000 gallons of hot water. And yeah, that's not going to do much. Um, uh, and so similarly, the input in these parables, it's really small and unassuming. It shouldn't make a difference. And not only that, but it also doesn't really make sense how it works at all. The second point that Jesus is making is that the workings of the kingdom are invisible and mysterious. You and I have studied seeds in school. We have microscopes, and we can see how yeast feeds and multiplies. But 2,000 years ago, they didn't have that frame of reference. So the processes of how a seed grows or why dough rises was hidden from them. So in these parables, Jesus is using examples of real, stunning mysteries of life. They would not have been able to tell you how it works. At the end of the day, it just does. In the same way, you and I are not going to be able to explain how God's kingdom spreads, what the process is, how to anticipate it or map it. It's invisible. It's mysterious. I don't know how it happened, but at the end of the day, it just does. There it is. And what it is, is huge. That's the third point Jesus is making. The end result is not just a reasonable amount. No, the impact of these tiny seeds is enormous. That small mustard seed, the one you had to carefully pinch between your fingers, it becomes a tree towering over you and filling the sky with branches. That little pinch of leaven from yesterday's leftovers, mix it with three measures of flour and it becomes enough bread to feed a couple hundred people. And let's not just focus on the size either. Notice the life in Jesus' examples. This tree has branches so spreading that birds can come from all over and make nests in it. Jesus is pulling imagery here from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Or from Psalm 1 where the tree yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Life abounds from this tree. Such a large amount of bread. 
is almost certainly bred for a large party or a social gathering. And I picture a hundred people sitting around tables together, finding conversation and stories and laughter and leaving satisfied in both body and soul. A tiny seed somehow becomes the tree of life. A bit of buried bread becomes the wedding feast. This is how the kingdom of heaven works. And history has seen this borne out, hasn't it? We now have 2,000 years of perspective, and we can see that Jesus was telling it exactly how it is. Every Easter, as part of the celebration at our church, our pastor reads a quote that tells the facts about Jesus objectively. It talks about how he was born poor in an obscure village, how he never held government office, never traveled more than 200 miles from his home. He died in disgrace, owning not even the clothes on his back, and he was buried in a borrowed grave. But then that quote ends with this. It says, 19 wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever were built, and all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. Incredible, isn't it? Over and over, the Bible testifies that God uses the small and the simple, the weak and the disregarded, to bring his kingdom into the world. God will choose quiet faithfulness over flashy technique every time because that is how his kingdom works. And this challenges us today because what Jesus teaches in these parables is that God's kingdom works directly in opposition to our culture's cult of efficiency and pragmatism. And not just our, our culture out there or something like that, but like for all of us, this is the air we breathe. In our world, the only questions that matter are, is it faster? Is it cheaper? Is it easier? Will it increase sales? How fast will the growth be? Will it help us win? If the answer to any of these is yes, then that's what we should do. You'd be foolish not to. If your opponent does it, you need to do it better. Or better yet, do it first. But if we, as the church, are going to be a people of the kingdom of heaven, we must push back against the never-ending pressure of the world. And instead, we must ask Jesus' kingdom questions. Is it just? Is it merciful? Is it true? Is it honorable? Is it pure? Is it lovely, commendable, excellent? Is it worthy of those who are made in the image of God? These are the questions we must ask about what we do in the world, in our church, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our politics. To do this, 
we're going to have to embrace wholeheartedly Jesus' teaching that his work is small. It's slow. There's a reason that Jesus uses agricultural pictures, not technology. It's not glamorous. And the way it works is not clear. We're not going to be able to draw a direct line from A to Z. We need to be comfortable with the phrase, I don't know. We have to be willing to admit that what we do will not make sense to the world. We're going to be told that type of thing doesn't work in this day and age. Well, you know what? Jesus' way has never worked in any day and age. We might be mocked, and we have to be okay with that. We have to be willing to say, yeah, you know what? We might lose, and that's okay. We can want to win. That's fine. We can want to win, but we cannot be afraid to lose because winning is not how the kingdom of heaven works. You see, our king will win in the end. His kingdom will come in power someday. But in his upside-down kingdom, dying comes before living. A couple years ago, I saw a movie that was a powerful illustration of this, and I commend it to you. It's called A Hidden Life by the director Terrence Malick. It's a deeply, richly Christian film and a beautiful, weighty experience. A Hidden Life is set during World War II, and it's the true story of a rural Austrian farmer, Franz Jagerstatter, who refused to swear loyalty to Hitler when he was conscripted into the army. He was imprisoned for it, and eventually executed. You see, Jagerstatter saw what Hitler was doing across Europe, and he considered it evil. He equated the worship of Hitler through loyalty oaths to be idolatry, so he knew he could not submit. And the bulk of the movie comprises of many people, from his fellow townsfolk to the Nazi courts, begging him to comply. Why are you resisting, they ask. Your resistance changes nothing. It makes no difference in the face of this army, this war. You're making your wife a widow, and you're leaving your children fatherless for nothing. And the critics agree. When this film came out in 2019, overwhelmingly the critics writing about the movie were baffled by it. After all, usually in our movies, resistance to Hitler has to do with the Holocaust, and this movie has nothing to do with that. In real life and in the movie, Franz Jagerstatter's life and death went by practically without note. It didn't lead to changed minds and hearts that we know of. His village didn't suddenly rise up in protest and begin resistance to the Nazis. He didn't inspire troops fighting against Hitler. He protested, he died, and it didn't matter. But Malik disagrees. And this is where it comes back to the mustard seed and the leaven. Terrence Malick chose to close his movie by fading to a black screen and displaying this quote from author George Eliot. She writes, For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. 
I love that quote so much. I want to read it again. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Isn't that good? I can see Jesus nodding in agreement with Eliot, and he might even take it further. I see the mustard seed. I see the leaven. And before we move on, I want to offer a pastoral word that struck me as I prepared this sermon. For those of us, uh, any of us who grew up burdened by our culture with the task of changing the world. If your childhood or even adulthood was anything like mine, we were told over and over again, you can do anything you want to. You can follow your passions. Go be our future leaders. Go change the world. You can change the world. In fact, we're depending on you to change the world. Countless assemblies and speeches and posters have told us this our entire lives. And on the one hand, this is fine. Um, I am grateful to live in a country where this is indeed possible. And it is true that one person can make a visible difference at times. But I have a feeling that for many of us, probably most of us, maybe all of us, this constant messaging hangs like a weight around your neck. I say, I haven't accomplished great things. Heck, I'm struggling to do the small things well. What impact do I have? I mean, it's honestly, it might be honestly laughable that anyone could tell you with a straight face, you're going to change the world. If that's you today, I want you to know that Jesus sees you. He sees the smallness of your life, and he's not ashamed of you. He sees the mustard seed of your work, and he's not joking. He's not mocking you when he speaks of towering trees. Just like he wasn't making fun of the poor widow who only gave two coins. You remember that story? She gave all that she had, but it was only a few pennies. Jesus was not pointing that woman out and saying, you know, she's a great example of sacrifice, but really we all know it's the buckets of cash over here the others are pouring in that make the real difference. No, Jesus meant it. We honor the big and the bold, but God honors the humble and the faithful. Somehow, the kingdom of heaven really is like a tiny seed that turns into an enormous tree of life. It really is like a pinch of leaven that feeds a crowd. Our job is to live lives of faithful obedience and loving participation in his kingdom. And he takes that obedience and slowly, quietly, inexplicably, yet inevitably, he changes the world. Amen? Amen. So, is this an excuse then, though, for only doing a little bit? Is God telling me here that he only needs a little bit of my life and I don't need to do too much? No, absolutely not. You see, the seed parables are a recognition of your smallness. You are small. 
we are small. Uh, these parables recognize that smallness. They're not an excuse for giving little. That's these next two parables, the parables of the treasure and of the pearl of great price that show us the cost of the kingdom and the reward of the kingdom. So let's read those together. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. I was really excited that I was asked to preach this passage because this parable of treasure hidden in a field, it's always been my favorite of Jesus' parables. And I think it's my favorite because this little picture is dripping with joy. You see, the Bible is very frank, and and no one more so than Jesus, about the cost of following God in a broken world. Jesus told his followers to give away all they have, to put up with ridicule, and expect to suffer for his sake. One of his overarching instructions was to pick up our cross daily and to follow him. In this parable, it doesn't dispute that fact. We'll talk about that in a minute. But more simply and clearly than anywhere else do we see a picture of why we do all this. It's because the transaction is absolutely worth it. And the joy of that hope saturates this little story. Imagine digging in someone else's field, working hard for someone else's benefit while you're just trying to scrape by day after day, year after year, when one day your shovel hits a wooden chest and it's filled with gold. I know you've all spent some time dreaming about winning the lottery. Perhaps especially these past two weeks, right? Um, I know you've imagined the moment of wild thrill when you realize that the ticket actually won. What if it was sitting there right in front of you? Life-changing wealth, true security and peace. And all you had to do was scrape together the money to buy it. I would have everything I owned on the front lawn this afternoon available to anyone who could Venmo me some money. My home would be on the market today and I'd accept whatever cash offer I could get. I mean, I would have the, I would sell you the clothes on my back and I will walk out the door naked if you give me the money I need to buy that field. What isn't worth selling to get it? Nothing. The transaction is a no-brainer, and you would be delighted to make that. When Jesus calls us to give up even our lives for the kingdom of heaven, it's with the same logic. Look elsewhere in the Bible, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Or Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Jesus is worth it. The amazing good news that the Bible proclaims is that somehow, somehow we give up our small lives and in return, we get God himself in us. That's incredible. Almighty God promises that one day he will dwell with us and we will dwell with him. 
And we will eat from that tree of life. And we will drink from the river of life without price. And the amazing thing is that somehow that can begin to work backwards even now. His presence and his power can be with us even now. That is worth it. According to Jesus, and with the triumphant echo of countless Christian saints after him, any cost is absolutely worth it. Jesus is worth it. And honestly, I think the biggest problem that you and I have is not bad behavior. It's not that we do bad things. It's that we don't see the kingdom of heaven as the treasure that it is. It's not that the cost is too high, but that our desire is too small. It's it's not a life-changing winning ticket that we see when we look at life with Jesus. It's more like an annual bonus at work or a little bit fancier of a car. Yeah, it would be nice to have, but what I've got going on is pretty good and I don't want to mess that up. And honestly, I don't know know what to do with that. Um, I don't know exactly what to tell you on how to desire Jesus more. That's not a grace that is mine to, to give. And honestly, it's something that I struggle with too. But I do know, I do know that Jesus is not far off. He's not hiding from us. Your heart for him might depend on grace, but there are well-worn footpaths we can walk down that the saints who have gone before us have pointed out, leading to fountains of grace and wellsprings of joy. So we can do things like spend time in his word. Let the stories of God be the ones that fill your mind and shape who you are more than the stories on your screen. Let his word be what your heart and eyes dwell on rather than what you're going to buy next or where your next vacation will be. Begin your day with prayer. End your day with prayer. Fill your day with seeking his face, striving to see him better and more clearly. Because we're not trying to pump something up here. We're not trying to magnify something small so that it seems big and impressive. No. What we're doing is we're desperately trying to wipe the mud off our windshields so we can clearly see what really is incredible. Let's repent together. Let's throw off the sin that blinds us and root out the thorns and weeds that choke out our fruitfulness. Jesus is calling us to follow him. He's worth it. So start with the desire that you do have and pursue it. Look to increase it. Let the joy in Jesus that you do have lead you to give generously what he's calling from you. And then look for his presence and his love to snowball in increased joy, to give more and more until that field is yours and that treasure is your secure deposit. I earnestly want you to hear this church this today church because my hope is that you would find your joy in the anticipation of our glorious king and his kingdom and I care I care because yes these parables are saturated in joy they are but there's also warning in them that we need to hear and hear clearly the kingdom of heaven is not gained half-heartedly. 
This man, he found the treasure, and in his joy, he sold all he had and bought the field and gained the riches. The merchant, with eyes full of hope, sold all that he had and gained the pearl. But there's a logic here. If if either of them didn't sell all they had, they would not have been able to buy the field or the pearl, and they would have lost the treasure. If the man gets home and looks around and says, I can't sell my house, I can't sell my clothes, I can't cancel my vacation, I might be uncomfortable, then he will not get the treasure. If the merchant thinks to himself, what will people think if I sell all my stuff? They'll make fun of me and I'll look like a fool. I might lose opportunities and connections. I can't do that. Then someone else will buy the pearl. The kingdom of heaven is not gained half-heartedly. Do not fool yourself. Jesus has nothing to do with sentimental, say a one-time prayer and you're in religion. God is not an accessory to adorn your best life now. If you've had ears to hear, Jesus has been saying this all along. Remember he said, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. He said, you cannot love God and money. And Jesus is not talking only about those outside the church. He's talking to us too. In fact, I'd actually say, even say he's talking especially to us. Two weeks ago in the parable of the weeds, the message was not just that there might be weeds out there in the world, but that there are weeds right here in the master's own field. Weeds growing right up with the wheat that will not get sorted out until the end of the age. Similarly, next week in the parable of the sower, I want you to notice that Jesus mentions four types of soil. Sure, one of those describes those who ignore Jesus and the word of the kingdom, but the other three soils are all ones who hear him and respond to him. Three of the four soils are in the church, and yet only one of those three actually bears any fruit. Finally, this week, Jesus immediately follows up his parables about treasure with a parable about the angels at the end of the age sorting out the evil from the righteous. Jesus has revealed deep truths about the kingdom of heaven in these parables. And parables may be stories simple enough for children to understand, easy to make a coloring picture out of, but they are not frivolous. They're not silly. The kingdom of heaven demands to be taken seriously, and it is well worth your time to ponder Jesus' warnings in your heart. So on the one hand, I hope we leave today with a healthy fear. After all, the Apostle Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is a healthy fear that knows the weight of God as judge and leads us to examine ourselves, lest we reach judgment day and hear the terrible words, depart from me, for I never knew you. We must weigh these warnings carefully because Jesus means them. On the other hand, though, I also want to come to you with Jesus' words as well. Be not afraid. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. So fear 
Examine yourself. Be terrified of distrusting God. Tremble for fear of getting to the end of the age and discovering that you have badly misjudged the value of God and his kingdom. He is not playing games. But do not fear that if you come to him on your knees with hope and love that he will turn you away. He won't. And this is the paradox of Jesus. Our God is a God of power and majesty and authority that should cause us to tremble, but he's also a God of love and mercy and tenderness. When you cast yourself on him as your hope and your security and your life, he will hold you tight every single time. And so we're about to take a meal together that celebrates the fact that our Lord loves us so much that he gave himself up for us, letting his body be broken and his blood be spilled so we would never have to be afraid. It is a meal not to be taken lightly, but let's look at our glorious hope of risen life with our God and his kingdom and let us joyfully pay the cost together. Jesus and his kingdom are treasures. Take them out regularly. Examine them. Delight in them. Dwell on them. Fill your imagination with true stories. And then participate. Give your life and give your possessions as well. Don't worry if it doesn't make sense. Don't worry if it's small. Don't worry if it isn't effective. Be faithful. And together, let's let Jesus plant our little seeds into his good soil. And I can't wait to see a whole forest of trees.